Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. We continue our series today, Jesus Goes Global, with a message entitled Pentecost. So turn with me to our Bibles in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 to 13, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. Perhaps you can recall a time in your life when everything changed. You know, for many of us, we might think of graduation or even our wedding day or perhaps, you know, the most significant day of all, that is, for all of us who know Christ. You will remember the day you first bowed your head in submission, repented of your sin, confessed Jesus as Savior and Lord, and that one moment changed the trajectory of your life. Looking back now, you have to wonder where you would now be if you had not come to that juncture in the road. Without that one event, your life would have turned out oh so very differently. I know that people often talk about life as being a series of tiny changes, and I suppose a great deal of life's experiences are exactly that. But there are moments in every life when the change is anything but a series of little events. Rather, one change that is monumental and transformational, life-altering, changes the trajectory of everything. You know, it's kind of like your life gets divided into B.C. and A.D. I mean, from now on, you see everything about yourself as the time before that event and the time after it. It's not just true of individuals. It's also true of nations. It's true of entire eras. Acts chapter 2 is just such a thing. It, It describes the day of Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit. With this, a new era has come. Lives are changed. But I'm going to argue the world has changed. You could, after that, view the people of God before and after Pentecost, or even the message of God before and after Pentecost. Now, before I jump right into this chapter, let's stop and ask, do you mean that prior to the events of Acts 2, we were not in the era of the Holy Spirit? No, that's not what I'm saying. The Holy Spirit was always in the world from the moment of creation unto the present. However, a great many good and excellent Bible teachers argue that Prior to Pentecost, the Holy Spirit only rested upon individuals for the purpose of some special activity, and then he would leave them again. That's to say, these Bible teachers argue that the Holy Spirit did not live inside believers until Pentecost, and that the Holy Spirit coming to live inside of believers as a permanent inheritance is the change that happened right here at Pentecost. Now, I have a great respect for those Bible teachers who hold that position, but I most respectfully want to disagree. I I disagree because as I read the Old Testament, that's not what I find. Yeah, it is true that in some cases, Samson, Judges 14, 19, it does say that the Holy Spirit rushed on him, and then with his power, Samson defeated the Philistines. That would give the impression that the Spirit only came upon Old Testament individuals to perform a certain task. But I argue that those are bad examples because, for instance, in the case of Saul, it does say the Spirit rushed on him, but Saul was never redeemed. He was never a saved man. And in the case of Samson, I think his first act of believing faith came much later in his life. And so again, the Old Testament examples of the Holy Spirit only coming upon people for a given task are, for the most part, among those who are not walking with God. And in contrast, you want to consider Numbers 27, verse 18. There we're told that Joshua is a man in whom it says, is the Spirit. And indeed, that phrase gets repeated again in Deuteronomy 34, verse 9. It said, he is full of the Spirit of wisdom. 
Exodus 31 verse 3 says Basileel, the craftsman of the tabernacle, was filled with the Holy Spirit. Ezekiel 2 verse 2, Ezekiel testifies that the Spirit entered into me. Micah 3 verse 8, Micah the prophet says, but as for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord. He indicates he's filled with the Holy Spirit, which sounds very much like the experience of the book of Acts. And David, after he's caught in sin, writes his plaintive psalm of confession, that's Psalm 51, and then in verse 11 he says, cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. So he prays this as if he knew that that he had the Holy Spirit as a permanent possession. Don't throw me away and condemn me, prays David. And I know what being condemned means. It means the Holy Spirit would be removed from me. See, Old Testament saints did testify to the ongoing presence of the Spirit, both within them and as their permanent possession. And a little thought will tell you that this must be the case. You know, in Romans 8, there's an extended argument that all people are either led by the Spirit or they're being led by the flesh. Unless we're indwelt by the Spirit, says Paul, we cannot please God. Well, now, if that's true, what should account for a statement in Genesis that Enoch walked with God or Abraham believed in God or David was a man after God's own heart? It is not possible to walk with God without being filled with the Holy Spirit. Well, then, if that's the case in the Old Testament, I mean, how in the world does Pentecost change anything? Or or to put it another way, what change was made at Pentecost? And that's a very vital question and one we must answer properly. What is the Pentecostal experience? Well, look again at the verse that I said is the theme of the book of Acts, which is Acts 1 verse 8. Jesus is speaking. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So at the outset, something new had happened at Pentecost. The Holy Spirit would come in such fullness or there would be so much greater of an experience with the Holy Spirit that something the Old Testament saints had never known. So what is this greater outpouring of the Spirit? Again, according to Acts, the Holy Spirit would make the disciples witnesses, drawing men and women to Christ unto the ends of the earth. So the Old Testament saints did not know the power of converting men and women to the Lord. Joshua would drive out foreign nations. He certainly didn't convert them. David secured Israel's borders. He didn't win the nations to the one true God. No Old Testament saint knew of the power of preaching repentance and faith, causing men and women to repent, to to turn to the living God. Isaiah preached for a lifetime, warning and pleading, but the situation only went from bad to worse. He never won Israel over from their sins, much less the nations around him. Or Solomon might have seen the queen of Sheba marvel at his wisdom, but he did not win the nation of Sheba or convert them to the Lord. There's more. You know, the Old Testament saints never had the power to drive out demons. The Old Testament saints never had the power of spiritual gifts that are given after Pentecost, gifts that glorify Christ. The Old Testament saints did not have the power to build a church among the nations so that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. You know, neither did they have that greater sense of intimacy with God that we have after Pentecost. I mean, they did not know the reality of the veil in the temple being torn in two and that deep inner sense that all believers now have that we're being swept into the Holy of Holies. 
God hears and answers our prayers. You know, I could just go on and on. That's the New Testament Pentecostal reality. You know, so the Old Testament saints did have redemption. They had a change of heart. They, they were given a new nature in which the Spirit urged them to live godly lives. That was their inheritance. But the fullness of the Spirit, especially as it relates to knowing Jesus and proclaiming Jesus and calling men and women from every nation and tribe, that wasn't theirs. But all that was about to change. So Acts 2, 1 says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. You know, in the Old Testament, the Feast of Pentecost was called either the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of the Harvest. There were in the Old Testament three major pilgrimage festivals in which all of Israel was required to journey to Jerusalem, and they were called upon to celebrate a festival unto the Lord. You know, Jesus died on one of those festivals, and we know that was the festival of the Passover. And then exactly 50 days after Passover, you count seven times seven weeks, add one day, you get the Feast of Weeks or of Harvest or of Pentecost. Again, Israel would have been overflowing with pilgrims. And again, God so designed it that this major event should be witnessed by all of Israel. So what was the Feast of Pentecost all about? Well, it was a celebration of the harvest. It was for commemorating God's provision for his people. It was also the celebration of God's abundance. That's what the harvest signified. God is lavish to his people, and he's about to be even more lavish. So let's read verses 1 to 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. You know, the very first event is the sound of a rushing wind. You know, maybe when you're reading this, you might think back of what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, verse 8. Jesus said, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We're about to see that reality. Hi, Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. You know, I'm so grateful to have a moment just to express our gratitude for offering your prayers and financial gifts this past month. Here at Back to the Bible Canada, our priority is to provide Bible teaching you can trust, uninterrupted, reaching the maximum number of people across the country, and your commitment allows this to happen. Well, in conversation with friends across Canada, it's become clear that in times of crisis, God's people are energized and sustained through a profound faith in a faithful God. But it's also clear that in times of crisis, people search for truth, something to place their confidence in when life is turned upside down. Well, thank you for continuing to stand with us and sharing God's word of truth. For more information about the ministries and resources available to you through Back to the Bible Canada, or to offer a gift to sustain this ministry, please call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. The word for wind and the word for spirit, well, it's the same word in Greek, and that's also true of the Hebrew language. You know, so for Jesus, this was an excellent illustration. He said, you can see the effects of the wind, but you can't actually see the wind. That's what it means to be born of the Spirit. 
Everything changes in a person. So you can't actually see the filling of the Holy Spirit, but the effects, well, they're unmistakable. And so those of us who read this now should not be surprised that in this moment of the major change in eras, the very first hint that this day was coming upon them is the sound that seems to come from the very presence of God. It's a sound that's heard like a great windstorm. The next event is the dividing of tongues of fire that appears on all 120 of them. You know, in the Old Testament, the image of fire often speaks of the presence of God. So, you know, you might remember that Moses, while, while he was in the wilderness, he comes upon a burning bush and a voice speaks and says, Moses, take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. But fire in the Old Testament is also a symbol that speaks of God's burning holiness and purity. So now when the Spirit comes, God will burn the impurities from our lives. There's no such thing as being filled with the Spirit and continuing on in the life of sin. And so both the sound of the wind and the tongues of fire represent the change of era and the change of heart. The Holy Spirit has come to indwell believers so that they might walk in holiness, but of course so much more. But then again, with the signs of his holiness, Luke says, then all 120 of them all at once were filled with the Holy Spirit. That is, suddenly, that which was unknown to believers up to this time had now become true in them, and they begin to speak in other tongues. I'm going to stop here because when it comes to tongues, I mean, that's where all the controversy starts among believers. So let's see if I can erase some of that. The word tongues is the same word as the word languages. You know, in older English, people would say, I speak the English tongue. You know, tongues and languages, that's synonyms. That's where many of our problems lie. You know, when many of us think of the gift of tongues, we think of the gift of speaking in an ecstatic language, a spiritual utterance that is, you know, unknown to anyone but God. So we think of the gift of tongues as something different than the gift of speaking in another language. But in truth, what's happening on the day of Pentecost is that suddenly after the phenomenon of the wind and the fire, all the believers start speaking in languages that they've never heard before. But why and what does that mean? So let's go to our next section, which is Acts 2, 5 to 13. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Perga and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and said, They are filled with new wine. You know, at some point in time, and we don't know when, but the 120 must have come out of the upper room, They've joined the many in the streets. Remember, since this is a festival in which Jews are required to attend, the Jews who have come to celebrate the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Pentecost, you know, are the Feast of God's abundant provision while they're all there. They're not only living in Judea and Galilee, but they're also from the dispersion. 
Jews were living in a number of different nations, and we can see here that they've come from as far away as Italy and Europe, Turkey, Syria, well down into the Middle East, as far away as Iran and Arabia, down into Egypt and through the nations of North Africa. Each of these Jewish groups would have been familiar with the language of the Jews, but they would have known their local languages from the nations where they lived. And fascinatingly enough, Luke, in describing this scene, says that each of them heard someone of the 120 speaking in their own language. Now here, Luke changes the word. Before, he's used the word glosase, from which we get glossolalia, tongues. But now he uses the word dialectos. Well, we can also translate that as languages, but as you probably guessed from the sound of the word, it can be translated as a dialect. And what's so remarkable is that the languages the 120 are speaking were languages that related to not just the 15 nations described, you know, from which these Jewish pilgrims came, but in a language that matched the local dialect. And clearly, the 120 had not been to those places and had no way of actually knowing those unique languages. And so says Luke, they were amazed and astonished. You know, another translation says they were perplexed or even bewildered as to how this thing came to be. So at this point in time, we need to stop and ask, what were the 120 actually saying? Notice again that in the latter part of verse 11, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. Now, several things should be borne in mind. That, that phrase, mighty works of God, that's a technical expression for praise and worship, not for preaching. Now, think of how many psalms extol the mighty works of God. So, for instance, listen to Psalm 145. The first six verses could have been something like the 120 are saying. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his, his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. And then the psalm goes on to say, The Lord is merciful and gracious. All your works speak of the glory of your kingdom. And then the Lord upholds those who are falling, and the Lord opens his hand and satisfies the desires of all. And the Lord is near to those who call on him, and the Lord preserves those who love him, and on and on it goes. That's what it means to declare the mighty works of God. Now, I take the time to mention that, and I say it because, as Paul will say later in 1 Corinthians 14, the gift of tongues or the gift of languages is not the gift of evangelizing or preaching or even giving a message to men. 1 Corinthians 14.1, Paul says, For the one who speaks in tongues speaks not to men, but to God. That tells us why it was necessary for there to be a sermon after the outpouring of the gift of languages. Now then, we still have to ask, what was the purpose of this gift of languages? And I know that there are some who will say, well, it's a, it's a reversal of the Tower of Babel. You know, at Babel, God divided the nations and now he unites them. I actually don't think that's what this is about. The various languages will not go away after Pentecost. And neither this is a sign that this is going to happen. I think that the theme of the book of Acts tells us what this event signifies. See, the gift of tongues, the declaration of the mighty acts of God, 
is being made available to every language on earth. God is making his glory known to the nations. And Pentecost is the declaration that the mighty acts of God will eventually be declared to every nation on earth. And then and only then will the end come. This is a prophecy of worldwide evangelism and the worldwide winning of people to Christ from every nation and language group on earth. This is about Jesus going global. And the response to this outpouring of the gift of languages is curious. There are, it would seem, some who, you know, think this is incredible, and they they ask themselves, what does it mean? I mean, they don't know, but, oh, they're so interested. And then there are others who simply wave their hands and say, you know, it's nothing at all. These guys are drunk. You know, in a sense, that is the story of Pentecost. Suddenly, the great God of Israel will become the great God of every nation under heaven. And the Holy Spirit has come to make sure that that's going to happen. And there are some who will say, well, now, that's the most amazing change of eras because after this, the nations will hear of Israel's God, bend the knee, and declare Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, and join in the family of Abraham, all the nations. The prophets in the Old Testament look forward to that. Now the day is here. And others, well, they're simply going to wave their hand in derision and they'll say, too much booze, it don't mean a thing. And that's the thing about the mighty acts of God. Incredible that some people will never know what's going on. But one thing is certain from this day onward, Jesus has just gone global. Thanks so much, John. Let me ask you this question. We we talk quite a bit about the power of the Spirit available to God's people, and yet I'm not sure the average Christian really understands its implications to our daily lives. Yeah, I mean, it's one thing to have received the Holy Spirit, which we do at conversion. I mean, I don't, I'm going to say this. I, I know for a fact that conversion is not possible until the Holy Spirit opens our hearts to receive the Word of God. So, you know, already the Holy Spirit is acting in our own lives. But as one continues to read through the book of Acts, we find frequently that God's people are filled again and again and again by the power of the Holy Spirit. We need to develop an expectancy. We need to constantly be asking for the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, We need to recognize that at every single moment in our lives, uh, we need the Spirit's power. So this attentiveness to the Holy Spirit, in which we continually ask, seek, and anticipate, uh, and look for his promptings. All of that uh, can make all the difference in the world in accessing the Spirit's power. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. You remind us every day, you challenge us to ensure that the calling of God to provide excellence in Bible teaching remains uncompromised. And that's exactly the mark we're striving to hit every day. Recently, we received this note from a listener. Thank you for staying true to the gospel regardless of changing times. We're so grateful. And it's with humility we recognize the trust our listeners place in this ministry. The need to share the gospel, the good news, trustworthy Bible teaching is critical and your gracious gifts allow this to take place. On behalf of every member of our ministry team, thank you for what you've already done. And in advance, thank you for continuing to stand with us. 
To discover all the Bible resources available to you or to offer a financial gift to support these Bible teaching programs, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.